In a passage I've been doing a lot of thinking about, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15, Peter writes, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will be the outcome of the godless man and the sinner? The question is if God first judges his own people, those of his own household, will he not rightfully judge the nations of the world as well? As Abraham once said, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Genesis 18.25 By the time we reach Ezekiel 25, the prophet has penned 24 chapters of judgment. It's been an arduous journey through all of the judgment coming down on Judah, down on the people. A continuous flow of the judgments and the warnings of God, even getting beyond warnings to just the fact that judgment is here. Judgment is falling. Judgment is coming. It's judgment upon the household of God in that day. But don't forget that. For all of their rebellion, Judah and Israel were the household of God on earth. The chosen people. The ones He called His children. So 24 chapters of this judgment upon his household. Before that, we went through the book of Jeremiah. Heard all of his portentous warnings of judgment. Before that, we heard multiple warnings through the prophet Isaiah. In fact, we've heard from Elisha and Elijah and Samuel and the judges. Going all the way back to Moses, judgment has been foretold on the household of God, the people of Israel. And if it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, 1 Peter 4.18, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? If God is going to so judge His own people, what then about the nations surrounding Israel? It's not surprising, actually, that the earliest warning we have on record was a warning for all the nations of the earth Jude 14 tells us that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all, to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. Jude tells us Enoch said that. Enoch prophesied that. Enoch, who was a prophet of the coming flood... Because he named his son Methuselah. Meaning in his death it shall come. Part of the prophecies of Enoch were prophecies of coming judgment. Although what's interesting is Jude tells us this particular prophecy was not about the flood. But was an end times prophecy of the final and ultimate judgment that was going to fall on the world. A second judgment. The first being the flood. And the second in the coming of Jesus. You see... Though judgment begins with God's household, fair warning is given to the nations of the earth, for judgment will fall upon all the nations as well. And that's where we're going. In the scriptures before us, that's where we're going tonight. Chapters 25 all the way through 32 continue judgments now. 
We will only get through chapter 28 tonight. You'll thank me. But we begin with Judah's next door neighbors, their closest neighbors, Ammon, Moab, and Edom, right across the Jordan River to the east, and Philistia to the west. Chapter 25, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward the sons of Ammon and prophesy against them. Say to the sons of Ammon, Hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because you said, Aha! Against my sanctuary, when it was profaned, and against the land of Israel, when it was made desolate, and against the house of Judah, when they went into exile, therefore, behold, I am going to give you to the sons of the east for a possession. And they will set their encampments among you and make their dwellings among you. They will eat your fruit and drink your milk. I will make Rabbah, capital of Ammon, a pasture for camels. And the sons of Ammon a resting place for flocks. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced with all the scorn of your soul against the land of Israel, therefore behold, I have stretched out my hand against you, and I will give you for spoil to the nations. And I will cut you off from the peoples, and make you perish from the lands. I will destroy you, thus you will know that I am the Lord. He goes on, thus says the Lord God. Behold, because Moab and Seir say, Behold, the house of Judah is like all the nations, therefore, behold, I am going to deprive the flank of Moab of its cities of its cities which are on its frontiers, the glory of the land, Beth Jeshimot, and Baal Meon, and and Kiriatim. And I will give it for a possession along with the sons of Ammon to the sons of the east, so that the sons of Ammon will not be remembered among the nations. Thus I will execute judgment on Moab, for they will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, verse 12. Because Edom has acted against the house of Judah by taking vengeance, and has incurred grievous guilt, and avenged themselves upon them, therefore thus says the Lord God, I will also stretch out my hand against Edom, and cut off man and beast from it. I will lay it waste. From Taman, even to Dedan, they will fall by the sword. I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel. Therefore they will act in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath. Thus they will know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. Now let's wait right there. For Ammon, Moab, and Edom, you Bible students know, is Jordan today. Modern Jordan contains all of what was at one time three nations. Ammon in the north. Ammon, Jordan. The capital of Jordan today was is the area that was Ammon at one time, Moab in the middle, Edom in the south. All three of these nations were personally and politically connected to God's household Israel, and all three of these nations cheered as Jerusalem went up in flames. All three of these nations were thrilled to see it happen, but I just want to quickly point out some differences that are worth noting. First of all, God's incentives for judgment are different. God's incentives. With Ammon, we see Ammon cheered the fall of the Jews and their temple, verses 3 and 6. God's incentive for judging Ammon was because they cheered the fall of the Jewish people and their temple. 
Lamentations chapter 2 verse 15 says, All who pass along the way clap their hands in derision at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city of which they said the perfection of beauty, a joy to all the earth? And the Bible tells us that, that Ammon clapped and stamped and rejoiced and danced. Which is interesting because we see the foes and enemies of Israel doing the same thing today when any evil befalls the land of Israel. They still clap and dance and shout and cheer. They should read this passage. Because the Lord says, Ammon, because you rejoice, because you cheer at the fall of my people, I will judge you. You see, the people of God here are not the issue. It's the rejection of God Himself. God obviously feels this this kind of scorn, this cheering that goes against His land, against His people, but He feels it most personally. To rejoice at the fall of the temple, to rejoice at the fall of the Jewish people, was to scorn God. When the world scorns the church, when non-Christian or anti-Christian people scorn you, simply for believing God, for worshiping Him is true, for taking Him at His word, you need to understand they mock their own Maker. Jesus said in John 15, 18, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. And so the world does cheer when the household of God goes down. The world loves to cheer when a pastor falls, or when a church falls apart. It always hits the front page of the news. The world doesn't understand when they mock the church, when they mock God's people, when they mock Israel, they mock the Lord. Secondly, we see Moab. God's incentive for judging Moab. A little bit different. Moab, verse 8 tells us, claimed that the house of Judah is like all the nations. Well, what does that mean? They minimize the value of the Jewish people. God says, that's not okay. It's not okay to look at my people Judah and to say they're the same as everyone else. They're not the same as everyone else. And I believe absolutely that the Jewish people have an intrinsic value that makes them different than everybody else on the planet. Now even setting aside the historical uh, value that they have brought to the planet, even setting aside the international blessings of the Jewish community, their intellect, their innovation, their invention, their investment, their insight, their entertainment... Set aside all that the Jewish people have done to make the world a better place. Just take that out for a moment and understand that the intrinsic value of the Jew is not because of anything that they've done. It's because they are the chosen of God. God said, I choose them. That alone is enough for me. That alone makes me say, I will stand with the Lord and say, I choose Israel too. I will stand with Israel too. Why, Rick? Because God does. Because the Lord chose the Jewish people. I didn't. He did. But because He did, so will I. Paul said it so well, Romans 9.3, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. 
to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. Do you realize the value that comes to the world because God chose Israel? Culminating in the fact that Christ came into the world through the Jewish people. So the Lord chose Israel. I will stand with Israel. Judah is different. The Jews are different than all other nations. But God hears Moab saying, ah, they're no different. And he says, for that, judgment will fall on you, Moab. Paul also says in Romans eleven eighteen, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember, it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. That's the right attitude. And you've heard me say it before. Let me just be clear. Any nation, any organization, any church that denies Israel's unique place in the plan of God is no different than Moab. And I believe we'll be judged for it. Ammon cheered the fall of the Jews. Moab claimed Judah was no different. Edom, Edom cherished a vengeful spirit toward the Jews. Verse 12 says, Because Edom has acted against the house of Judah by taking vengeance and has incurred grievous guilt and avenged themselves upon them. A spirit of vengeance. A long historical spirit of vengeance was in the heart of Edom. And so the incentive for God's judgment was different. His incentive for Ammon, for Moab, and for Edom was unique to each one of these three countries, but each one of them would be judged. It's just... There were for different reasons. Edom stands apart. Second thing to note here is God's intentions for judgment. Not only his incentives, but his intentions. For Ammon and Moab, it's the same intention. He says it twice. He says, they will know that I am the Lord. Verse 7 and 11. He says it again for Moab. For Edom... He says in verse 14, note this, Thus they will know my vengeance. So there's a big difference. I'm okay with being judged as part of of Ammon. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Okay, good, because I want to know that He's the Lord. If I'm part of Moab, they will know that I am the Lord. Good, because I want to know that He is the Lord. But if I meet Him, they will be judged that they might know my vengeance. That's a a little bit heavy. That's a little different there, isn't it? Why? Why is Edom different? They originally were the ones, you may recall, who refused entrance into the promised land. Remember, the Israelites were coming through. Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 through 21. Israelites are coming to the land and they say, Hey, can we just pass through Edom on our way to where we're going? And the Edomites said, No way. God said, That's not okay. Their relationship with Israel has been one of constant strife. Why? Why so much strife? Why so much vengeance? And why are they judged so much more severely than Ammon and Moab? And the reason is because Edom is more closely related to Israel than anyone else. You may recall this, Bible students, who was the father of the Edomites? Esau. Jacob and Esau. The Edomites were first cousins with the Israelites. And they hated them. And they strove against them. 
and they held vengeance in their hearts for them, their behavior against the household of God was more malicious than Ammon or Moab combined, the Edomites. Prophet Obadiah, he focuses his entire prophecy on a judgment of Edom. And in verse 10 of his prophecy, he says, Because of the violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Ezekiel will later say in chapter 35, verse 5, Because you have had everlasting enmity and have delivered the sons of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of the punishment of the end, therefore as I live, declares the Lord God, I will give you over to bloodshed. And bloodshed will pursue you, since you have not hated bloodshed, therefore bloodshed will pursue you. The Edomites. And even today, those who are of the lineage of Esau. You know, the Arabic people, and and stay with me on this because I'm not making a racist statement. But the Arabic people draw their lineage from two sources primarily in the Bible. Ishmael and Esau Ishmael and Esau and if you wonder why there has been such constant friction between Jew and Arab down through history that's why there has been an everlasting enmity we'll talk more about that when we get to Ezekiel 35 but understand this family matters to God I think it matters to God when our families are in disarray I think it matters to God when brother stands against brother, when a cousin hates a cousin, when a mother and a father are in a, in a broken relationship. Family matters to God. I think on a practical level, He would call each one of us to do everything within our power to bring peace to our families. Yeah, but you don't know what He's done, what He said, what she did. It doesn't matter. I know what they did to Christ. And I believe that we are called to bring peace to our families because God looks at family and says this is important. This is a picture, a microcosm, a miniature of my family. Family matters. Edom was family with enmity to the Jewish people. So there's one more difference between Ammon, Moab, and Edom here. And it is God's instruments for judgment. You see, with Ammon and Moab, the instrument for judgment was the sons of the east, Babylon. Verse 4, verse 10. tells us, I will bring the sons of the east against you. This will be my instrument of judgment, and you will know that I am the Lord. Ammon, Moab, how about Edom? Notice verse 14. I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel. It won't be Babylon that takes down Edom. It will ultimately be Israel. Well, how does that work? When did that happen? Edom no longer exists today. Not as a nation. Not with any national identity. When did it happen? In the time between the Testaments, something happened to the Edomites. That is after we close out of the Hebrew Scriptures, before the coming of Christ. In that 400 years or so, the Edomites were driven out of their land by an enigmatic people, the Nabataeans. Builders of Petra. 
When they came in and they drove out the Edomites, but the Edomites didn't disappear. They remained a people. They still had a national identity. They just moved on down south further into the Negev. Something happened there. In 126 B.C., Josephus tells us they were conquered by a priest and leader of the Maccabeans, John Hyrcanus. And they were forced at that time to become Jewish converts. They lost their country to the Nabataeans and they lost their national identity exactly as Ezekiel prophesies to the people of Israel. It would be Jews who finally undermine and take out the Edomites. Today the land of Edom is nothing more than a wasteland. Those of you who have been in Jordan, you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. It's just barren, it's empty, it's depressed. Nothing there. Nothing left. And nothing left of the Edomites. Let's turn our attention to Philistia over on the west, on the seacoast of Israel. Verse 15, thus says the Lord God, Because the Philistines have acted in revenge and have taken vengeance with scorn of soul to destroy with everlasting enmity. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines, even cut off the Keratites and destroy the remnant of the seacoast. I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes, and they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance on them. So we turn to the Philistines, who no longer exist as a people today. They are not Palestinians. The Palestinians do not draw their lineage from the ancient Philistines. Palestine got its name from the Romans who said, let's call it Palestina, when they finally drove out the Jews, let's call it Palestina, Philistine country, as a slap in the face to Israel. And so the land was called Palestine for a long time. And, and in, the, in the early 1900s, coming up to the, to the beginning of the independence of the Jewish state in 1948, there were Palestinian Arabs and Palestinian Jews. The land was just called Palestine and had been left to that name for centuries until it finally became Israel again. And so the land of Palestine, or or that region that people want to make into a Palestinian state, it's a misnomer. That being said, the actual Philistines of ancient history no longer exist. God says, I'm going to cut off the Keratites. Why does he say that? Well, the name Keratite is another name for the Philistines. It probably draws back from where the Philistines come from, Kaftor, or Crete, the island of Crete. They were a European seafaring people who sailed over from Crete and established themselves on the western seacoast of Israel. And so he calls them here the Keratites. He says, I'm going to cut off the Keratites. It's probably a wordplay here. Because in the Hebrew, Keratim means cutters or executioners. I'm going to cut off the cutters off. I'm going to karat the karateem. I'm going to execute the executioners, is what God is saying. The last mention, by the way, of Philistia in the Bible is Zechariah chapter 9, verse 6. A mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. See, the Lord takes issue with those who are in the revenge business. And the Philistines were constantly out for revenge, vengeance against Israel, a constant constant thorn in the side of the Jewish people. 
Paul writes in Romans 12.19, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And by the way, if you have family problems and you're wondering how to deal with that, here's a good way. Don't take vengeance yourself. Don't stick it to a brother or a sister or a family member who has stuck it to you. You leave it to the Lord. You leave judgment to the Lord. You leave vengeance to the Lord. And for your part, you pray grace. You you seek reconciliation. You walk in forgiveness. Rick, that's hard. I know. I've been around long enough to have had to walk some of this out myself. I know it's hard. I know pain is at its greatest among families. But in that place, we are not to be people who take vengeance. In fact, Paul goes on quoting, he says, If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, the more you love someone, the harder it is for them to hate you. Unless they just happen to be hateful. Speaking of satanic inspiration... We come to the next nation. The next one under judgment is Tyre. Ezekiel gives it three chapters. Chapter 26, chapter 27, and chapter 28. Chapter 26 is pure judgment. Chapter 27 is a lament. And chapter 28 is enlightenment. As we talked about on Sunday, chapter 28 is where God draws back the veil between the natural man and the spiritual There's a prince of Tyre, a man, the man at the top. But when the veil is opened up, we see behind the prince of Tyre is the king of Tyre, the real power behind the man, I believe, Satan. These three chapters ought to be taken together. You really need to get full understanding. You really need 26, 27, and 28 all together, as I believe you'll see. If you heard the teaching on Sunday morning, good, you're ready for this. If you haven't heard it, you need to hear it because it's the conclusion, really, of what we're going to look at right now. So all three chapters. Well, Rick, why didn't you just do all three together? Because I didn't want you to get too tired. Verse 1. Thank you. I had a whole lot more. But I didn't really want to tread there. I know, let's just retire the jokes. Verse 1. In the eleventh year, on the first of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. This is 586 B.C. So as Jerusalem is falling, God brings this word directly to the prophet Ezekiel. We don't know the exact month, but the context indicates this is at the final collapse of Judah, when the country of Judah itself is being broken, that God brings this judgment against Tyre. I believe that's significant. Verse 2, he says, Son of man, because Tyre has said concerning Jerusalem, Aha! The gateway of the peoples is broken. It has opened to me. I shall be filled now that she is laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. Tyre. The word Tyre means rock. It's first mentioned in Joshua 19, verse 29, where we're told that the border of Asher, the tribe of Asher, turned to Ramah and to the fortified city of Tyre. It's a great and very famous city in the ancient world. In fact, you know, today we would say Seattle, L.A., New York, you just say the name, people know what you're talking about. 
You say Tyre now, and we think, I've heard of Tyre. Didn't Jesus go up to Tyre? Tyre of the ancient world was a global city. It was known for its worldwide trade. It was the commercial center of the Mediterranean world. If you lived anywhere in the Mideast of the ancient days, you knew where Tyre was. You knew what came from Tyre. You knew what went to Tyre. It was the city-state in and of itself, a city-state of the Phoenicians. Its capital was composed of two parts. One part of the capital of Tyre was on the mainland. The other part, we talked about Sunday, was a half mile off of the mainland on a rocky island in the Mediterranean, hence the name Tyre, or Rock. Huge rock island. And so the capital was there between the two. It was actually in both places. And again, the commercial center of the Mediterranean world. Tyre was a one-time ally of Israel. Remember Hiram, king of Tyre? Hiram was that king friendly with David. They had a great relationship. He had a working relationship with Solomon. For Hiram of Tyre sent down cedars of Lebanon for the building of the temple. But at some point, Tyre and Israel began to have a falling out as, as the... As the people in the kingdom of Israel divided into two kingdoms, Tyre began to back off. Their relationship deteriorated, even to the point that there were Tyrians who were in the slave trade of Jewish people that would go down into Israel, into Judah, and kidnap Jewish people, bring them back to Tyre, and sell them into slavery. What was Tyre's sin that so initiated God's judgment. As we go through this, you will see the primary sin of Tyre was pure commercial greed. And if you got tired of me talking about greed on Sunday, buckle up. (laughs) Commercial greed was Tyre's big issue. In verse 2, you might notice Israel, Judah, is called the gateway of the peoples. Because all international trade had to go from Asia to Africa, from Africa to Asia. It went through Israel. So Israel was known as a gateway of this trade. And as goods and services and merchandise went through Israel, of course the Israelis, being a a people, a nation themselves, would put their own taxes on it. Taxes and tariffs. And so it was more expensive then for the people of Tyre in their trade. And so as Judah fell, Tyre rejoices. Because now we can make more money. Tyre was inspired by commercial greed. Even at a time when far more significant things were going on in the world. Things were hanging in the international balance. Babylon was spreading out. And Tyre's first and foremost concern was how can we make more money. Verse 4. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers and I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. She will be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the, of the sea. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God, and she will become spoil for the nations. Also her daughters who are on the mainland will be slain by the sword and they will know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring upon Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses and chariots and cavalry and a great army. And he will slay your daughters on the mainland with the sword. And he will make siege walls against you, cast up a ramp against you, and raise up a large shield against you. 
The blow of his battering rams he will direct against your walls, and with his axes he will break down your towers. Because of the multitude of his horses, the dust raised... This is an amazingly specific prophecy. The dust raised by them will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of cavalry and wagons and chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city that is breached. With the hoofs of his horses, he will trample down all your streets. He will slay your people with the sword, and your strong pillars will come down to the ground. That's exactly what happened. A precise prophecy here, a very specific judgment, right down to the dust kicked up by Babylon's horses that would lay like silt across all the people of Tyre. But here's what you need to know historically. The siege of Tyre. Remember how long the siege of Jerusalem was? Two years. Nebuchadnezzar set up a siege against Jerusalem, and that siege lasted two years before the city fell. The siege of Tyre was 13 years. And across 13 years, here's the thing, Nebuchadnezzar did not fulfill this prophecy. Now, if we stopped right here, we'd have to say, "Uh uh-oh, that's problematic. I mean, he's got to fulfill the prophecy. It says Nebuchadnezzar's going to do this. He'll slay your daughters. His axes will break down your towers. His horses are going to kick up the dust, man. You're telling me it didn't happen. No, it didn't. Thirteen years. You see, Nebuchadnezzar crushed Tyre on the mainland, but he could not get across to crush the island city of Tyre. And the Phoenicians had a great navy, so they just kept bringing in supplies. Nebuchadnezzar had them cut off on the land, but he could not cut them off by sea. And so the supplies kept coming, and the people kept eating, and the city stood strong on that rock island, and he could not take it down. But look back at verse 3. God says, Behold, I'm against you, O Tyre. I will bring up many nations against you. As the sea brings up its waves. Okay? How does the sea bring up its wave? One after another, after another, after another. That's the key to this prophecy. Nebuchadnezzar would be the first, and he would destroy, absolutely wipe out the mainland city of Tyre. There's some archaeological evidence of where it is, and and the city of Tyre, there is a modern city of Tyre today, but it's not in the same place. There's some ancient debris that's a few miles away, completely raised it to the ground. But he couldn't get across the sea. So what happened? Wave after wave after wave would come against Tyre. When Nebuchadnezzar got tired, and he retired and left, 13 years of this, he finally said, enough's enough, wasting the resources. Other nations began to come against Tyre. Wave after wave, until finally, notice this, verses 11 and 12, we have a change here, a change in pronouns. In verse 11 and before that, it was with the hoofs of his horses and he will slay your people. Suddenly in verse 12, also they will make a spoil of your riches and a prey of your merchandise, break down your walls, destroy your pleasant homes and throw your stones and your timbers and your debris into the water. The prophet Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 3, said, Tyre built for herself a fortress and piled up silver silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea, and she will be consumed with fire. In the late 1800s, Edward uh, Robinson 
famous archaeologist, discovered 40 to 50 massive marble columns underwater around the shores of Tyre. So what happened? 240 years after Nebuchadnezzar, in 332 B.C., a great warrior by the name of Alexander the Great finally figured out how to take the island down. He built a causeway across a half mile. He took debris from the city and began to build it up from the shoreline. As his men marched across, they built literally towers that they could hold before them and great shields that they could hold above them because the people inside the city of Tyre were throwing hot burning sand to try and keep people away. This deflected all that. They finally crossed and they finally took down the city of Tyre and Alexander the Great wasted it, wiped it out. Tyre finally fell just exactly as God said it would, wave after wave after wave. Verse 13, So I will silence the sound of your songs, and the sound of your harps will be heard no more. Tyre was known for music. It was a very musical place, which makes sense because the prince of Tyre was musical, which makes sense because the king of Tyre was musical. If you were here Sunday, you know what I'm talking about. Verse 14, I will make you a bare rock. You will be a place for the spreading of nets, You will be no more, for I, the Lord, have spoken, declares the Lord God. Indeed, even today, fishermen in the region of Tyre spread their nets out on the rock for drying, just like God said would happen. Verse 15, Thus says the Lord God to Tyre, Shall not the coastlands shake at the sound of your fall, when the wounded groan, when the slaughter occurs in your midst? Then all the princes of the sea will go down from their thrones, remove their robes, strip off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground. They will tremble every moment and be appalled at you. They will take up a lamentation over you. And here we get a little mini lament. How you have perished, O inhabited one, from the seas, O renowned city which was mighty on the sea, she and her inhabitants, who imposed her terror on all her inhabitants. Now the coastlands will tremble on the day of your fall. Yes, the coastlands which are by the sea will be terrified at your passing. It's a mini lament that sounds very familiar to another lament in Scripture that we'll come to in just a moment. For thus says the Lord God, when I make you a desolate city, like the cities which are not inhabited, when I bring up the deep over you and the great waters cover you, and then I will go, then I will bring you down with those who go down to the pit, to the people of old. In other words, you're going to die. And I will make you dwell in the lower parts of the earth like the ancient waste places with those who go down to the pit so that you will not be inhabited, but I will set glory in the land of the living. I will bring terrors on you and you will be no more. Though you will be sought, you will never be found again, declares the Lord God. And as I said, there is a modern city in Tyre. Not in ancient Tyre. It's a few miles south of where we believe that was. The modern city is a stronghold of Hezbollah today in southern Lebanon. But what does he mean here in verse 20? He's given all of this judgment, even this miniature lament, and all of a sudden he makes a statement. It really stood out to me. Maybe it did to you too. At the end of verse 20, but I will set glory in the land of the living. Tyre, I'm going to take you down. For all of your self-proclaimed glory and your splendor and your riches and your greed and your self-proclaimed majesty, you're going down. But I will set glory, true glory, in the land of the living. I believe he's speaking of the coming kingdom. The kingdom which will show true glory. 
You know, when the, when the kingdom of Christ comes, we're going to see what glory is. We're going to understand glory in its absolute essence. It is nothing like we think today. It is not Dubai. You know, it is not tons of money thrown at tall buildings made to look wonderful or, or splendid. It's not the visual effect. The glory of the Lord will be in all the earth. Jesus Himself ruling and reigning out of Jerusalem, that's glory. And God says, I will set glory in the land of the living. And I love that He just inserts it there. You know, let's, leaves it hanging. As a little reminder in the midst of this judgment, glory's going to come. It's just not going to look like Tyre. Glory of man never lasts. Remember, again, the prince of Tyre, Ethbaal II, and the king of Tyre, that satanic influence behind him, Satan, I believe, himself, in Ezekiel 28. With that in mind, here's the greater understanding. Tyre itself, the city of Tyre, is a picture of the satanic regime of Antichrist on the earth. And this becomes even more uh, clear in the next chapter. But the satanic regime of Antichrist, just like the regime of Tyre, will go down to the pit. And once disposed, God will then set glory in the land of the living. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 2, verse 8, the Lord says to Jesus, Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And if you need a little more evidence of the connection between Tyre of old and the future global kingdom of Antichrist, we continue on in Ezekiel 27. You could call it a lament for the sinking ship. God describes Tyre as though it were a ship in the ocean, probably because it sat out on that island in the ocean. And he describes this ship this way. Three parts actually to it. Part one, the ship of state. The ship of state. Verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, take up a lamentation over Tyre. And say to Tyre, who dwells at the entrance of the sea, or the entrance to the sea, merchant of the peoples to many coastlands, thus says the Lord God, O Tyre, you have said I am perfect in beauty. Your borders are in the heart of the seas. Your builders have perfected your beauty. They have made all your planks of fir trees from Sinir, that's Mount Hermon. They have taken cedar from Lebanon to make for you a mast. Of oaks from Bashan, they have made your oars. With ivory, they have inlaid your deck of boxwood from the coastlands of Cyprus. Your sail was a fine embroidered linen from Egypt, so that it became your distinguishing mark. Your awning was blue and purple from the coastlands of Elisha. And that's not Elisha the prophet. We think that's probably either Italy or Sicily. The inhabitants of Zidon, Zidon was the oldest of the cities cities of the Phoenicians, and Arvad, Arvad is another city island that's north of Tripoli today, These inhabitants were your rowers. Your wise men, O Tyre, were aboard. They were your pilots. And the elders of Gabal and her wise men were with you repairing your seams. Gabal is a Lebanese town today, uh, Jubael. 
All the ships of the sea and their sailors were with you in order to deal in your merchandise. He gives this beautiful description of this grand sailing vessel and says, Tyre, that's you. This beautiful ship. And you're, you're taking all of your implements from nations around who are coming and they're giving you of your sail and for your mast and for your oars and for your planks and for the deck. And all of this built up in this glorious ship of state. And this grand seaworthy vessel would take great pride in its worldliness. The people of Tyre, and I get this, growing up in Southern California, child of suburbs of L.A., you know, there was a time in my life where I was like, yeah, I live in L.A. where we're on the cutting edge of everything. It happens first here, even before New York. I mean, they're over there on the east. They're still stuck in the old days. In California, in Los Angeles, this is where it's happening. Movies are released here first. The music hits here first. The fashion hits here first. And so there's a certain amount of pride that goes with that. That's how the people of Tyre felt. Tyre was historically on the cutting edge of sophistication and learning and art and beauty and renown and wealth unparalleled in the ancient world. And they had one problem, and it is the same problem we talked about Sunday, the same problem I see in America today, probably more than any other problem. There was trouble at the wheel of this ship of state, and the trouble is their pilots. Verse 8. Your wise men, O Tyre, were aboard, and they were your pilots. What do you mean? The Hebrew word for wise men here is chakam, and it means intelligent, learned, shrewd teachers. God says, your pilots, those who were at the wheel, those who were translating the charts, those who direct the crew, those who discern the weather, your pilots, your captains, were your teachers. They're the ones who are directing this great ship of state. And your teachers can either navigate well or they can sink the ship. Entire situation, they were entirely sunk. Their teachers would sink them. Matthew 16. Jesus was dealing with another group of teachers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they came up testing Jesus and they asked Him to show them a sign from heaven. And He replied to them, When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it, except the sign of Jonah, and he left them, and he went away. And like the pilots of Tyre, the teachers of Tyre, so the teachers of Israel in Jesus' day were sinking the ship. They were leading the ship into dangerous waters. And today, we live in an evil and adulterous generation. We live in a generation where the sign most needed, well, it's still the sign of Jonah. That's still what the world needs to hear. Three days, three days in the belly of the earth, Jesus Christ died and rose again, crucified for us. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the sign of Jonah. That's what Jesus was talking about. And in this evil and perverse and wicked generation where even the teachers are sinking the ship, What the world needs to hear is the sign of Jonah. They need the gospel. 
Preachers are not preaching the Gospel. They need to preach the Gospel. Teachers within the church are not speaking the Gospel like we used to. We need to speak out the Gospel. People need to hear of the power of the, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is the only power to save. It's the power for our lives. It's eternal in nature. And it is a message that gets through unlike anything else. Better than video clips and skits, little dramas, modern ways of thinking we can get out to people. There's some bad piloting going on in the church, gang. God blames the pilots of Tyre. He doesn't blame the prince. That comes later. He condemns the prince. But he says right here, your pilots are your wise men. And the pilots are taking the ship into dangerous waters. The second part of this lament leaves the poetry for prose. It's a very direct word and it speaks of the ships. Part two of the mercenaries and the merchants. Verse 10. Persia, which is Iran today, Lud, which is Lydia, Put, which was Libya, so northern African countries, were in your army, your men of war. They hung shield and helmet in you, they set forth your splendor, the sons of Arvad, that, that city island, and your army were on your walls all around, and that Gamadim, which we believe were, it can mean men of valor, we believe they were Syrian warriors. They were in your towers, they hung their shields on your walls all around, they perfected your beauty. Verses 10 and 11 are telling us here that most of the fighting people in Tyre were mercenaries. They hired out. Well, why? Because the Phoenicians didn't really care so much about fighting, they cared about money. They cared about about getting all they could get. And because they were a commercial people, they relied primarily on mercenaries from other nations to fight their battles. Hired guns. Problem is with a mercenary, when the money runs out, the mercenary runs out. When you can no longer afford to pay or when it's looking bad, there's no national loyalty. You know, There's no patriotism to cause a mercenary to stand. They just say, ah, I'm going home. I'm out of here. This battle's not going well. Forget the money, I'm going to go where it's safe. But the Phoenicians would hire out mercenary ships, if you will. What's in your wallet? I really wonder if Alex Baldwin carries around a Capital One card. I just don't know if he really does. What's in your wallet? Better still, what's your calling? I hope that not a person here would be a mercenary for Jesus. There are some, you know, people who are in it to get something out of it. Mercenaries for the cross who flee at the first sign of trouble. I believe the primary question for ministry is what is your calling? What's your call? What is the calling card that you present? What is your calling? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And once again, we're back to the sign of Jonah. Our calling card is the gospel. Our calling is to present Jesus to the world. Whatever we get out of it is completely beside the point. 
Well, I go to church because I got healed there. Good for you. That's not the point. Well, I go to church because I have friends there. Wonderful. Still not the point. Well, they pay me a good salary. Still not the point. We're here because we are the called. And as the called, we are not mercenaries for Christ. We are as patriotic and loyal as you can get because we have been blood-bought by Jesus. And we owe Him everything. Well, Tyre had some trouble, and the Phoenicians did, because they dealt with all these mercenaries. The rest of the section now deals with not mercenary ships, but the merchant ships. Verse 12 going on says, Tarshish was your customer. Tarshish may very well have been Great Britain. Because Tarshish was a place where, well, you'll see here, it says they were your customer. Because of the abundance of all kinds of wealth, with silver, iron, tin, and lead, they pay for your wares. And we know that tin specifically came from the region that is Great Britain today. And iron, so these metals were were payment from Tarshish. So perhaps Great Britain. And then verse 13 says, Javan, Tubal, and Meshech. Javan would be the Greeks. Tubal and Meshech. The far north, Russia today. Regions of Russia. To bolst. Meshach perhaps even being drawn, or Moscow being drawn from Meshach. And they were your traders with the lives of men, slave trade, and vessels of bronze, they paid for your merchandise. Those from Beth Togarma, we know that's Turkey today, gave horses and war horses and mules for your wares. The sons of Dedan, Dedan would be Arabian Gulf states, were your traders. Many coastlands were your market. Ivory tusks and ebony they brought as your payment. Aram was your customer. The Aramaeans in Syria today. Because of the abundance of your goods, they paid for your wares with emeralds, purple, embroidered work, fine linen, coral and rubies. Judah and the land of Israel, they were your traders. With the wheat of Manit and cakes and honey and oil and balm, they paid for your merchandise. Damascus was your customer because of the abundance of your goods, because of the abundance of all kinds of wealth, because of the wine of Helbon and white wool. Vedan and Javan. Scholars are not sure, but Vedan is probably a Gulf state. Uh, Javan may very well be Yemen or also one of the Gulf Arabian states. They paid for your wares from Uzal. Wrought iron, cassia, sweet cane were among your merchandise. Dedan, as we said before, Gulf State traded with you in saddlecloths for riding. Arabia and all the princes of Kedar, they were your customers for lambs, rams, and goats, for these were your customers. We're talking about Saudi Arabia there. Verse 22, the traders of Sheba and Rayama, they traded with you. Sheba... Some have said that Sheba was Ethiopia. Probably not. Sheba was north, we believe, of Ethiopia. And Rayama, they traded with you. They paid for your wares with the best of all kinds of spices, with all kinds of precious stones and gold. Haran, Kanae, Eden, and the traders of Sheba, Ashur, and Chilmad traded with you, just more nations. They traded with you in choice garments and clothes of blue and embroidered work and in carpets of many colors and tightly wound cords which were among your merchandise. The ships of Tarshish were the carriers for your merchandise and you were filled and were very glorious in the heart of the sea. And all of that then is about the glory and the splendor and the commercial trade of Tyre. 
the seaport of vast global trade, worldly commerce, material wealth, the ship of state. This description in terms of trade is rivaled by only one other place in all of Scripture and we got to go there. Keep your finger here and turn to Revelation 18. Revelation 18. I'm just going to pick a few verses out so you can see the comparison here. Anyone who would study Ezekiel 26, 27, and 28 must also study Revelation 18. It's a parallel passage. Note this in verse 3 of Revelation 18. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. Skip down to verse 12. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every kind of article of ivory, every article made from costly wood and bronze and iron and marble. Verse 13, cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep and cargoes and horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. The fruit you long for has gone out from you. All things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. Tyre is an incredible foreshadowing of commercial Babylon. Revelation 18 describes commercial Babylon, I believe will be the centerpiece of the commercial wares of Antichrist in the Great Tribulation. That he will build up this great capital. And it's called Babylon here in Revelation 18, and it very well may be in the region where Babylon existed. Maybe very literal. I tend to lean that way. Others say, well, could it be New York City? And others say maybe somewhere else in the earth. Could be, but probably, probably actual Babylon. But it will be built up as this glorious, splendid commercial center of world and global trade, just like Tyre. Tyre is an amazing foreshadowing of Babylon in the end, that place of man's last material stand. And there the ship will sink. Which brings me to part three. Keep your finger in Revelation 18. Go back to Ezekiel 27. Part three of the lament, the last part of this chapter, shipwreck. Shipwreck, verse 26. Your rowers have brought you into great waters. The east wind has broken you in the heart of the seas. Your wealth, your wares, your merchandise, your sailors and your pilots, your repairers of seams, your dealers in merchandise, and all your men of war who are in you, with all your company that is in your midst, will fall into the heart of the seas on the day of your overthrow. At the sound of the cry of your pilots, the pasture lands will shake. All who handle the oar, the sailors, and all the pilots of the sea will come down from their ships. They will stand on the land. They will make their voice heard over you and will cry bitterly. They will cast dust on their heads. They will wallow in ashes. They will make themselves bald for you and gird themselves with sackcloth. And they will weep for you in bitterness of soul with bitter mourning. Why is that? Because the commercial center of the world at that time was fallen. Because all the money to be made in Tyre was over. It was a vast hole in the midst of the Middle East where no longer could all of these things be bought and sold and the people began to weep over it. 
Verse 32, Moreover, in their wailing they will take up a lamentation for you and lament over you. Who is like Tyre? Like her who is silent in the midst of the sea. When your wares went out from the seas, you satisfied many peoples. With the abundance of your wealth and your merchandise, you enriched the kings of the earth. Now that you are broken by the seas, in the depths of the waters, your merchandise and all your company have fallen in the midst of you. All the inhabitants of the coastlands are appalled at you, and their kings are horribly afraid. They are troubled in countenance. The merchants among you, among the peoples, hiss at you. You have become terrified, and you will cease to be forever. And that is the lament and the judgment on Tyre as Tyre fell, and it fell hard, wave after wave, culminating in Alexander the Great, finally wiping the city out. The island that was Tyre, we're not even sure where it was. That's how great the destruction was of Tyre. Back in Revelation 18, listen to this. Verse 9. The kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her, that is commercial Babylon, will weep and lament over her when they see her smoke, the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment and saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her, just like Tyre, because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Such is the greed that the weeping is not over the loss of human life, not over the destruction of this dwelling place of human beings, but the loss of commerce and merchandise. Down in verse 15, the merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment and weeping and mourning, saying, Whoa, whoa, the great city. She who is clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and every sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and they were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning saying, What city is like the great city? That's exactly what they said when Tyre went down. And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. It's like reading two parts of the same story. One we know happened. We know historically, ancient Tyre went down, and great was the weeping and the mourning, and it was devastating to the global economy of that day. And so Revelation tells us it will happen again for commercial Babylon. Now, let me answer a question here for those of you who might wonder. Was maybe the Apostle John, in writing the Revelation, just kind of drawing off of Ezekiel? I mean, come on, it's it's awfully similar. Maybe John had just finished reading Ezekiel and he went, Oh, that's good, i got to use that. Oh, that's a great picture. I've got to use that. Ezekiel was so long ago that, you know, a little borrowing off he said, that's not going to be a problem. I've got to write this down. And there are those who would bring up such a thing. In fact, some higher critics have asked that question. Gang, it is not John rewriting history. It is history repeating itself. It's just that we're going to see it happen again. 
on a much grander scale. What happened in ancient Tyre is going to happen in the near future at the end of the Great Tribulation when commercial Babylon fails. The question is, will the the world learn from this lesson? I think the answer is obvious. No. We haven't. We just can't learn that the pursuit of wealth and greed and merchandise and all of this stuff cannot satisfy and will always fail and will always fall apart. The Lord gives patterns to us in Scripture. It's one of the ways that God, who is outside space and time and dimension, it's one of the ways He speaks to mortal man. He gives examples in history. He'll show something happen and then He'll say, Now, did you see that? I'm doing it again. Did you pay attention to that? You're going to see it happen. That's a type. That's a picture of what is to come. And in this lament of Tyre, I believe he speaks out several warnings that we would do well to pay attention to. To those people who would put faith in a nation, in a ship of state. Hebrews 12.28 says, Brothers and sisters, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. So let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Don't put your faith in any nation, any country. You put your faith in the kingdom that we receive from Jesus. Amen? To those sailors who would listen to foolish pilots and false teachers, the Lord said in Matthew 17.5, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. You listen to Jesus. You don't listen to Pastor Rick. We've been doing that for over an hour now. No. You listen to God's Word. You listen to Jesus. You let Jesus be the final word in your life decisions. And not another man. Jesus even said, don't call each other rabbi. There's only one rabbi. And it's Jesus. And to those merchants who set their hope in the wares of the world... Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The beauty is not in the ship of state. It is in the Savior of our souls. Now, we're going to finish up quickly chapter 28. There's only a few verses here that we didn't cover on Sunday, so skip ahead to verse 20 of chapter 28. And remember this. I just said this. The Lord gives us patterns to follow. There's one last pattern we're going to end with tonight. Verse 20, picking up now the judgment of Zidon. Zidon was another Phoenician city north of Tyre. Tyre and Zidon, we see this in the Gospels. Jesus visits both places. But ancient Zidon was another Phoenician city. This is a judgment of Zidon. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward Zidon and prophesy against her. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Zidon, And I will be glorified in your midst. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her. And I will manifest my holiness in her. I will send pestilence to her and blood to her streets. And the wounded will fall in her midst by the sword upon her on every side. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Now stop right there. You might wonder, well, wait a minute. What's this about? I mean, he says, I'm going to be glorified in your midst. 
I'm going to execute judgments on her. I'm going to manifest my holiness. But what's in Zidon that's so bad? Why is God judging Zidon? A little background. Zidon was first founded by the firstborn son of Canaan. And we know this from Genesis chapter 10, verse 15. Genesis 10 is a great place to go if you're not sure what some place is or who someone is. Genesis 10 is the table of nations. And Genesis 10.15 tells us Canaan had a firstborn son and his firstborn son's name was Zidon. And Zidon is the founder of this city-state of Zidon. His cousin, by the way, was Nimrod, founder of Babylon. Interesting. This is a messed up family, the Canaanites. And Zidon has the historical headquarters of all Canaanite idol worship. It came from Zidon first. Baal worship. Ashtaroth worship and Tammuz worship all came out of Zidon. And so the one thing that we can determine pretty obviously here from the judgment that is on Zidon, you get in the middle of verse 22 where God says, I will be glorified in your midst. What was Zidon's biggest problem? The Lord was not glorified there. The idols, the Baals, the Ashtaroths, Tammuz was glorified there. God said through Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. And so the sin of Zidon was that God was not glorified there, idols were worshipped there, it was paganism to the hilt, and God said, you're going down for it. And you will know Baal is not the Lord, Ashtaroth, not the Lord, Tammuz, come on. You will know that I am the Lord. Seven nations are listed across these judgments. Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Tyre, Zidon, and Egypt, which we'll get to next week, chapters 29 through 32. Seven nations are given. Seven nations are judged. What do these seven nations all share in common? And it's one thing, Israel. They all surround Israel. They're all the most immediate neighbors of the country, God's country, Israel, of God's people in the day, Israel. Last week I promised after that long road of judgments that there would be no more judgments, and there are no more judgments for Judah. There are no more judgments for Israel. But there are the judgments of these seven nations that surround the people and the state of Israel. Israel, in the midst of these judgments, and notice this, in the midst of the judgments, verse 24, picking it up, the Lord speaks to His people. There will be no more for the house of Israel a prickling briar or a painful thorn from any round about them who scorned them, and then they will know that I am the Lord God. And this great prophecy, thus says the Lord God, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered and will manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they will live in their land which I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live in it securely. They will build houses, plant vineyards, and live securely when I execute judgments upon all who scorn them round about them, and then they will know that I am the Lord your God." Israel in the center of the nations, Ezekiel said back in chapter 5, I think it was. Israel in the center of the nations. There is an international judgment coming. 
a future judgment of all the nations. Jesus talked about it in Matthew 25.31. He said, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He'll sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him. The parable of the sheep and the goats, understand Bible students, is a parable for the nations. It is not talking about individual judgment, as sometimes people take it. It is talking about the judgment of individual nations. I'm going to gather all the nations. He says, we'll be gathered before Him and He'll separate one from another. That is one nation from another nation as the shepherd separates sheep from goats. He'll put the sheep on His right, the goats on His left, and the king will say to those on His right, Come you who are blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The judgment of nations. After the tribulation, when Jesus returns... He will gather the nations and He'll say, Alright, this nation stays. This nation to my right. This nation to my right. You are the sheep. You will enter the millennial kingdom. You will exist in the kingdom. This nation left. This nation goats. And the one characteristic that separates the sheep from the goats, the saved nations from the lost nations, Jesus says in Matthew 25, 40, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Israel. The brothers of Jesus. As you did it to them, you did it to me. And we see this. Here's the pattern. We've already seen it. We've seen it with Ammon, Moab, Edom, Tyre, Zidon. We see it with Philistia. We will see it with Egypt. As you treated Israel, so I will treat you. As you deal with my people, so I will deal with you. And though Judah went down, judgment began with the household of God. That's the pattern. Judgment begins with the household of God. But from there, it will and it must extend out to the nations. And so Peter said, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God and with us first. But what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? We live in a world facing judgment. Facing an intense judgment. That's why we're here. That's why there's a cement foundation on our property at Troxel. And I remind you again, it is not so we can have a building. It is so that we can go on to the greater vision of receiving the lost and of being a church that cares about the nations. Judgment begins first with God's people. Judgment will extend to the nations, which is why our singular message remains the gospel of Jesus Christ.